Great to be here with you today. You know, a few weeks back, we started a series in the church. We thought, well, we're getting into a new building. We better figure out what we're here for. <laughs> and we thought it was a good time to rethink church. So we call this series Church 101. We're taking it all the way up to Easter. Believe me, there's a lot to learn. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, we found out the Apostle Paul had like a measuring stick which he used to measure churches. And when he'd write to a, le a, church, a letter to a church like Ephesus or Colossae or, or Thessalonica, he always in the first chapters talked about three terms, faith, hope, and love. And he was like measuring their church, whether it was a good church or bad church, not by how many people they had coming or how much they preached the gospel or what they did in other forms. He was more concerned, do they show faith? Because that'll answer a lot of questions for him. Do they really help people grow in, in, in their hope or are they hopeless people? Are they really having love for one another and love for God? Now those three qualities, I hope you never forget, that's what a church is supposed to do. Be building that in all of our small groups, in all of our children's ministry, in all the youth ministry. We're supposed to in, in church services and outside church services and all the different ministries it's about three things. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is like a ladder, right? Hope is like an anchor that holds your life together. And, and what's love? Love is like concrete. It just is a commitment that's solid. That's not all you need to know, though. No, there's a lot more to know about church. And when you read through the New Testament, a lot is revealed about what you're supposed to do when you enter in church. If we call it like the functions of a church, how's it supposed to function? Well, that's what we're going to start with today. We're going to do this for like the next nine weeks. We're going to look at different things you're supposed to be doing while we're here. And the number one thing is worship. We're here to worship. And the astounding thing to me is this. Listen, how long have you been coming to church? Whoever taught you how to worship or what worship is? Probably nobody. I've never, I've been going to church my whole life. I never heard one sermon about worship. Not one other than the ones I've preached, <laughs> but I've never heard one. How come we're supposed to come to this thing, we're supposed to do this, and, and you don't have a training class? No one shows you how to do it? You're just supposed to kind of like automatically know? And so what ends up happening? We just do the same old rituals our ancestors did, the same old traditions they did, and we just kind of fall into the groove of this thing, somewhat you're supposed to know and do that you don't really know and do. What? That's the question we need to answer today. So I'd like to pray with you about it. Lord, we come before you, and we want to be worshipers, but we don't really get it sometimes. We really don't understand. There's, there's lots in the scriptures that teach about it, but somehow preachers ignore it, church people ignore it, even singers and worship leaders ignore it. Like, what is this thing? How do we do it? And I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit that this would, would reveal this to all of us today. It'd be a holy moment, the time when we really catch it. I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've already alluded to, when you mention that word worship, or as I put down the title of this servant, Churches for Worship, it brings up a lot of questions. Like, well, first of all, well, what is it? Why is it so important for us to do it? And just how are you supposed to do it? For example, today, you're here at a worship service. In about an hour, you're going to get out and walk out the door. When you're walking out that door, how do you know if you did it or not? 
Is it automatic? You just sit here, that means you did it? I don't think so. That's not biblical. Is it possible to come here and not do it? Yeah, it really is. So how do you do it? What is it? What does it feel like? What does it look like? What's it supposed to be experienced like? Now, honest to God, I'm not trying to make anybody here feel guilty. I'm not trying to load a burden on your back or make you feel like you're unworthy in any way. But I want to I save you. I want to save you from just doing some rituals, meaningless rituals. I want to save you from just going through some traditions, meaningless traditions. I want to save you from just going through the motions, just doing your duty, if you will. Coming to this like you'd go to a ball game or like you'd go to a concert or like you'd go to the doctor. (laughs) Do you realize all the other events in human history, all the other things you do every day are all based humanly and they were invented by humans, but the church is not. Worship's not supposed to be. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell can't stop it. Everything else, the gates of hell will stop. Can't stop this, why? Because it's different. It's based on God. It's divine. It's not human. So, of course, we must learn how to do this worship thing. We've got to try and understand it. It's different than everything else. And somehow, preachers and worship leaders think you're going to come here and you're just going to know how to do it. So you do it like you'd go to a ball game. You do it like you'd watch a concert. You do it like you watch a movie. You do it like you do everything. No! It's not supposed to be like that. Well, then... Marty, what's it supposed to be like? I'll show you. We got to figure that out. In fact, uh, Jesus said you could come to church and leave today, and your worship was in vain. He said this to a group of people. You have your Bibles? Look with me at Mark chapter 7. If not, we'll put it on the screen. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus spoke, speaking to a group of Pharisees. These are Jewish religious leaders, right? He's a Jew. And they're questioning, how come your disciples, Jesus, don't wash their hands before they eat? Because there's an Old Testament law. God made the Old Testament law to teach the Israelites how to have personal hygiene. It would keep them from getting diseases. But these worship leaders had turned it into some kind of guilt-promoting thing, some kind of ritual, some kind of process. Oh, you're not doing the right ritual. Oh, you're, you're outside tradition. And Jesus says to them, very similar to that, like, what are you guys talking about? Look what he says. Mark chapter 7. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy, you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they, in vain, did you catch that? It's worthless, it's vain. In in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching us here clearly, Jesus is teaching us clearly. It's possible to go to church, it's possible to go to synagogue, it's possible to think you're worshiping and you're not at all. You wasted your time, it's vain. Well, then, how do we do it? I remember reading this in some other passages of Scripture years and years ago, back in my 20s, and thinking, I've got to figure this thing out. What is this worship thing all about? I mean, I go to some churches, and they're jumping up and down and banging tambourines and speaking in tongues, all kinds of That's worship. I go to another church, and they're all just singing from a hymnal, and they're all sitting there. They never have show any emotion at all. Remember, I grew up in Scandinavian land. They have, they're frozen chosen. 
Which is right, I'm thinking. So I went on a quest to figure this out. So much so, I decided when I was in seminary in Dallas, Texas, I'm going to write a master's thesis on worship. So I'm going to study the New Testament. I'm going to figure this thing out. What are we supposed to do? I better find out if I'm doing it or not, because honest to God, I didn't know. Do you know? I didn't know. I'd studied the Bible already for years, and I didn't know. So I went on this quest. I put it down in your outline of the big idea. In church, we're supposed to worship God. Okay, how do I do that? And so as I was looking at my, my thesis, I wrote a thesis. I was looking at other authors and what they said about it and found out there's a whole bunch of guys that said the same kind of thing. Listen to this. Franklin Siegler, he was a Baptist guy. He put it this way. Worship is the life stream of the church. Vital worship provides the motivation and inspiration for righteous living, fervent evangelism, and the total stewardship of life. The hope for church renewal depends upon a renewal of genuine worship. Well, boy, do we need renewal. If most of the people that come to church don't even know what they're doing here, I guess we need a revival. I guess we need renewal. I guess we need something to happen. We need a reformation. Something's got to change. R.A. Torrey, a great Bible teacher of the past, put it this way. One great secret of the lack of power in service today is the absence of worship in our relationship to God himself. So maybe if you feel kind of powerless, like I'm not plugged into God, maybe you need to understand worship, he's saying. Warren Worsby, a famous Bible teacher from Moody Bible Institute, said this. The most important activity for a believer or assembly of believers is worship. He says the most important thing. The reason is simple. Everything a Christian does depends on his relationship to God, and the foundation of that relationship is worship. Howard Hendricks, an old professor I used to have, he put it this way. To the believer, worship is not a luxury, it's life. It's not optional, it's essential. It's not something reserved for a body of individuals who might engage in it if and when they have the time and the concern. It's the Christian's highest occupation. Wow, all these authors telling us we got to get a hold of this thing called worship. How do we do it? What, we, what are we supposed to do? So here's what I did. I went after this first question, point one. What is worship? I, got, I just had to learn this, and I want to share with you what I found out. I found out when you look through the New Testament, you know, from Matthew all the way to the book of Revelation, there's three Greek words for the one English word, worship. Just like there's three Greek words for that one English word, love. Well, there's three Greek words. The Bible uses all three of them for the one word, worship. The first word is the word proskuneo. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to most of you, but the word proskuneo means to bow down. It means to adore. It means to kiss toward. It means to show honor or, or even reverence and respect. The word proskuneo is the word mostly used in the New Testament for worship. Bow down, honor, respect. You're going to adore him for, for who he is. The second Greek word used is the word latreo. Latreo means to serve. It means you're going to offer yourself as a servant. You're going to serve God in honor, in, in, in real reverence and respect of him. You're going to serve him. Um, in fact, Romans 12, 1 and 2, make him a, a living sacrifice, that word latreo, a service of worship, that's the word latreo used there. So that's the second idea in big word worship. It's like, okay, I'm supposed to bow down, I'm supposed to adore him, and then I'm supposed to serve him. That, my serving is a form of worship. And then the last word, the third word, is the word sebomai. Sebomai means to sacrifice. 
means I will literally give up some things or start to do other things just for worship of God. And my sacrifice is the worship. Whether it's an offering, a give of money, or the offering of myself. I start asking questions at that point. Do you? Like, okay, why? Why do I adore him? Well, as it's revealed in the Bible, first, because of who he is. And, and why would I serve him? Well, he served you. He made you. You're his creation. So I would serve him back, right? That's what I was made for. So. Thirdly, why would I sacrifice? Huh? The cross, he sacrificed for you. So it's starting to make sense to me at that point. I'm starting to put it together and realize the key idea behind worship. If you, got it, you follow me so far? The key idea behind worship is, in fact, it's in the old English word, worth-ship. He's worth this. It's worth, it's value. It's all about values. It's all about expressing value to God, whether it's in my adoration of Him, my service for Him, or my sacrifice for Him. All these things are showing His worth. Worthship or worship is all about showing worth to God. You got that in your mind? You got to get this concept. That's what worship is. It's showing God the worth that is due Him. So, so far, we've learned this. Ready? This is a teaching sermon here. Worship is all about values, right? All about what you think is important. All about what is valuable to you. And according to the Bible, God made you to do that. You ever read the end of the Bible? Get to the end and find out, well, that's what we're here to do. Now God brings us to heaven and we're showing worth to him. It's like, wow, it's like never made sense. And it starts coming together in my mind back in my 20s when I start realizing, oh, I get it now. It's the whole plan of God. I was made to give him worth. And then someday I'll be back in heaven giving him worth. And all of my life's supposed to be about giving him worth, whether it's through adoration or through my service or through my sacrifice. What's the problem sometimes is that we start giving too much worth to the wrong things. For example, this happened to John. Turn to the end of the Bible. Ready? Last chapter in the Bible. In the last chapter in the Bible, the Apostle John tells us something that's very significant about worship. Ready? Verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. The whole book, he just said, I, I'm the one who heard this. I saw this myself. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship. There's that word at the feet of the angel who showed them to me and he said to me you must not do that I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book worship God it's so easy for us humans here's even the apostle John falls down at this angel oh man I can't believe you gave me this and the guy says get, get up man get up. what are you worshiping me for worship God it's so easy for us to, to worship so many things I mean add your list right that's called idolatry when, when, when something becomes more worth more valuable to you than the Lord. And that's what this angel was afraid of, saying, whoa, 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 what do you give me the credit for? Give the credit, the recognition, the worth, the value to God. So he goes, no, no, John, worship God. 
God put it all together. God made it all come true. This problem has a, um, a good definition in philosophy and in um, theology I discovered. Found a book called The Things of Earth, written by Joe Rigney, and here he talks about this issue of wealth, I mean, excuse me, of, of, of worth or value, and he puts it this way. Listen to this. Do we value all things, whether wife or food or God, equally? Well, most Christians would say no. We should not value all things equally. We should value things according to their worth. Makes sense, doesn't it? Theologians and philosophers call this principle call this the principle of proportionate regard. I'll explain that term. Put simply, it means that we should value or esteem or regard things in proportion to their value, their worth. Our subjective sense of something being valuable should be in accord with its objective worth. We all recognize that something is amiss, for example, if a man neglects his wife in order to play golf all the time, right, women? Something's wrong. Or if a mother considers the cleanliness of her kitchen of more importance than the health and happiness of her children, something's wrong. She's got her values all messed up. We even correct children who value their toys more than their siblings. You're supposed to share, right? You know, we teach. Jesus himself endorses this principle when he asks, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. For even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of what more value than many sparrows. That's from Matthew 10. All of us operate in terms of a scale of values. However vague or precise it may be, People are more important than property. Family is more important than hobbies. And if you're seeking to be faithful to the scriptures, God is more important than everything else. John Piper is quoted in this book. He, he tries to clarify. He says, some truths are worth a little bit of emotion, like this truth. We're going to have one amazing meal in just a minute. Well, that's worth a little bit of emotion. That God rules your life and loves you and gave his son to die on the cross for you and will take you into everlasting fellowship forever and ever is worth 10,000 times more emotion than this meal that you're about to partake of is going to be a good meal. All these authors are just trying to point out to us, there's this thing called proportionate regard. And at the top of the pile, the proportionate regard, and what we should give the greatest regard to and the greatest value to is God. And so if we're trying to understand and we're trying to put it together in our own minds what worship is, we've got to first understand it's about my values and what I think is important to God. Look at this. One quote I got to read to you from A.W. Tozer. He says it this way. All the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together all at once, would be nothing compared to the overwhelming problem of God. That he is what he's like and what we as moral beings must do about him. 
the, listen to this, the man who comes to a right belief about God and his honor and his worthiness is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. Did you hear that? This theologian in this book called The Knowledge of the Holy by, by Tozer, he's saying, you know, if you can get this idea, this concept that God's worthy and worth more than anything else, it's going to relieve you of 10,000 other problems in your life that you're never going to solve unless you get that straight. He's so right. So what is worship? It's worthship, showing God value. Let's go to the next question. Well, then why, why should we do it? Point two, ready? Point two, well, then why should I worship? In the book of Revelation, chapter four and chapter five, John the Apostle writes these things, and this is, again, something I just had to know. And so this, as I looked through the New Testament, I tried to understand, well, how do we do this worship? What does it look like? Why should we be doing it? And I'm looking in the book of Hebrews, or I'm looking in, in Galatians, or I'm looking in Colossians, I'm looking in Philippians, I'm looking at all these letters thinking, okay, where is the, the church service they had in the New Testament? Like the layout, like the singing of songs, and they did the, the preaching, and they did the offering. Like, where is that laid out? I don't know if you know, but there is no such thing. Paul never even told him ever once. Uh, your sermon should go about 30, 40 minutes, and you should be, probably have an offering, and you should take, sing some hymns and only sing these. No. And you, I don't know if you ever thought about this. That's genius that God didn't do. It's genius, because if God would allow that to be in the Bible, we would be zeroed in on that time period, that culture. We'd have to do it exactly like that, or you'd be wrong, Right? But God, in his genius, goes, no, 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 I want this to last over years. I want this to be adaptable to different cultures. They'll do the same functions, but it will change from culture to culture and time period to time period. Oh, that's just genius. I don't know if you know, other religions of the world have not done that. They, they focus on one time period. It's, 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 it's a human mistake. God didn't make it. Just reveals to me again, this is divine. Anyway, the only worship service ever revealed in the Bible takes place in heaven, and it's recorded in Revelation 4 and 5, and it helps us understand why we should worship. Ready? Look at chapter 4. John records this. And after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first, and the first voice which I, I, I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who, was there, he, he, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelin, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of, of, of emerald. Now, here's a guy trying to explain something to us very unearthly, and I know that some of these things are confusing, but he's trying to describe something none of us have ever seen. He says, around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed with white garments with gold crowns on their heads. Some say, well, it's the 12 tribes of Israel represented and the 12 apostles. Uh, maybe. No one knows. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and the peals of thunder. 
And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Can you imagine? You talk, this sounds like a movie. There's, you know, lightning and thunder and bolts going. It's an electric place. He's trying to describe the dynamic place this was. And he says, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Some say, some Bible teachers believe the sea of glass is like, a, like people, myriads and myriads of people. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Now, this is, this is just unbelievable. Again, he's trying to describe something. And he uses just human terms. Full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature was like the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, all these angels or what, and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, now this is the part you got to get. It's a worship service in heaven, and what are they doing? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I don't know, you guys. When I was doing my master's thesis and I came up to that, I thought, that's it. That's the first reason why we're supposed to worship. He's worthy just simply because of who he is. He's other, 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 perfect, perfect, perfect. Those are just synonyms of the word holy. He's separate, separate, separate. And we just, because of who he was and who he is and who he's going to be. It's like all eternity. It's like, yeah, I worship God, number one. Get this in your mind. You worship him just because he's not like you. He's not human. He makes no mistakes. He's perfect, perfect, perfect. Holy, holy, holy. Yeah, God. Second reason is in the next passage. Look what it says next. So he's got this picture of this worship service in heaven. He's painted for us, and he says, And whenever the living creatures give glory, verse 9, and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down, proskuneo, fall down, before him who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, What? Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your, your will, they existed and were created. The second reason, okay, if the first reason just because of who he is, the second reason is because of all he's made. <laughs> for who he is, we tried to put clouds on the screen. For all he's made, we'll try and show different things in creation, but you know, how vast. You could, get, you could take a telescope and set up here and read the in, try and read the universes with the telescope, and you, you couldn't go beyond what he's created. You could take a microscope and go down to the smallest little molecule, and you couldn't go deep enough to see all that he's created. Is he worth glorifying, worth admitting, worth giving credit to, and honor and praise? He's saying that's the second reason. They fall down, they go, worthy, worthy, worthy are you to receive glory and honor because you made everything and you made me. I can't believe you made me. What's the third reason? The third is chapter 5, ready? Let's just read to verse 10. Then I saw on the right hand him, him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on his back, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is the description of Jesus, right? The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Again, proskineo, fall down. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song where it was saying this, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, from, for, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth, on the earth. Wow. Do you catch it? Do you, how, how about it? You got it? What are the three reasons you worship God? Number one, just because who he is. Number two, because he created everything. And number three, he redeemed sinful man back to himself. For God so loved the world that gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He literally gave his blood, died on the cross in your place and in my place so that we could come back to what we were made for. We were made to worship God. There's, when you come to church every week, when you go to work every day, when you live with your family, when you do everything in life, you should be remembered. Here's the reasons I would give credit or recognition or honor or pray or sing or read the word is because I want to honor him for who he is. I want to honor him and glorify him for what he created. And then he redeemed me even after we walked into sin as mankind. He redeemed us back to himself. Wow. Pretty phenomenal, huh? I skipped something I was going to read that Tozer wrote in this book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Listen to this. He put it this way. You know, philosophy and science have not always been friendly toward the idea of God. The reason being that they are dedicated to the task of accounting for things and are impatient with anything that refuses to give an account of itself. The philosopher and the scientist will admit that there is much that they do not know. But that's quite another thing from admitting that there is something which they can never know, which indeed they have no technique for discovering. To admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him. Yet how he eludes us. He is everywhere while he is nowhere. For where has to do with matter and space, and God is independent of both matter and space. God is unaffected by time or motion and is wholly self-dependent and owes nothing to the worlds that he has made with his own hands. 
perhaps some sincere but puzzled Christian might at this juncture wish to inquire about the practicality of such concepts as I'm trying to set forth here today. What bearing does this have on my life, they may ask. What possible meaning can the self-existence of God have for me and others like me in a world such as this, in the times, the terrible times we find ourselves? To this I reply, that because we are the handiwork of God, it follows that all our problems and their solutions are in God. It's really in theology. It's in the Word. Some knowledge of what kind of God it is that operates the universe is indispensable to a sound philosophy of life and a sane outlook on the world and the world seen today. Wow. And we can't teach about God in public school. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. When I was in my 20s and some of these things were coming to my mind, I'm, I'm telling you, it's blowing my mind. I'm like, whoa, I can't believe nobody ever taught me this stuff. I can't believe I, I was supposed to just know this and I don't know it. I felt like I was learning so much. Do you feel like that? And I started thinking, you know, if God is the essence of value and everything created by him and everything he saves is, is, is ba based on his value and he's va if he, he is the source of everything that's worth anything, anything that's valuable, it's God. Well then, I thought, then if this is me, the closer I am to understanding him, seeing him, glorifying him, then what? The more value I have. Right? And the less I recognize him, and the less I think of him, and the less I glorify him, then the less value I have all the way to hell. Hell is valueless. That's why it's hell. That's why you burn. That's why you're wasted. There's no value. Hell is the absence of God. Holy smokes, I thought. This makes everything make sense. Now even hell makes sense. Because if God is all worth, all value, and all value and all worth come from Him, then to not be with Him, that's hell. It's worthless. Well, I thought, I better figure this out. How do I do this? How do I worship? How do I not just get caught in some traditions or some rituals? What's really important? What's not? I don't want to worship in vain. So I went to that third question. How should we worship? And I discovered that Jesus spoke to a lady. It's recorded in John chapter 4 and told her how to do it. Turn with me to John 4. It's called the woman at the well story. And there's a lot in the story. And they get talking about different things. And the difference is she's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. Samaritans and Jews weren't supposed to get along. They'd taken some of the Jewish traditions and some of the Jewish teaching, and they had changed it, morphed it. So they were considered perverters of, of the truth. 
So Jesus is at the well, and this lady's getting him some water, and they get talking about some things, and he knows a lot about her life, so he starts talking about her personal life and, like, how many husbands she's had. <laughs> well, she doesn't like this kind of talk anymore, so she says, hey, listen, the big controversy of the day, be like what's on the news every night, she said, you know, Jesus, let me ask you a question. What do you think about where we should worship? My people say we should worship in this mountain. Your people say the only place to worship is in Jerusalem. It's like she's just totally averting the question to get to this. And look at the answer Jesus gives her about worship. John 4, starting with verse 21, And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. It is now here. When the true worshipers, that's what we want, right? I want to do this truthfully. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean, spirit and truth? Well, let's take spirit. Obviously, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, but he must be referring to more, because he doesn't say, must worship in the spirit. He says, worship in spirit which must mean the Holy Spirit must be behind it. Acts chapter 2, when the church first began, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were able to speak the Word of God boldly from there on out, and the church began right in the Holy Spirit. But it was also, it must be referring to our spirit. And when our spirit is connected to God's spirit, we worship when we come in sincerity and honesty and plainness of speech and clearness of thought in our own spirit. The mo spirit means like the most you part of you is connected to the most you part, uh, he, him part of God. No. And then he says in truth. What's truth? Well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The scripture declares itself to be the truth, so it must be the Bible, but it must be more than that because it's God. And all truth is God's truth. So it's a bigger concept than just the Word of God, but of course you must have the Word of God because anything that violates the Word of God is not true. So it's the Word of God, but it's every truth in your life, everything that God reveals that's true. Wow. Spirit and truth. This is a place sometimes we get mixed up. A while back, I was watching a video. I had all the staff watch this video because it was a, a very unique video. It was an interview with two different men. One was Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson, maybe you've read books by him. He's written, oh, 40 or 50 different books. He used to be a pastor in Maryland. He's been a professor. He's spoken. He, he's, he's a great thinker, a great Christian leader. Well, this evangelical Christian Protestant leader was being interviewed in his conversation with a guy named... Bono, the rock singer, Irish rock singer, you know, U2 band. Some look like you know what I'm talking about, some don't. Anyhow, he's a rock and roll singer. Bono, and he's good. Well, Bono is a Catholic kid from Ireland, and he's going, Eugene, and he mentions a couple of his books. Without those books, I don't think I'd even be here anymore. You've changed my life. And they get talking about things, and they start talking about the book of Psalms, which is very interesting when you're talking about worship. In the Bible, there's a book 
with 150 chapters called the Book of Psalms in the Old Testament. That book was used in the synagogues to lead people in worship. Have you ever read it? It's used to help churches, especially New Testament churches. They use the Book of Psalms. And so Bono's saying, uh, Eugene, I got a problem with the church. Oh, really? Says Eugene. Well, what's your problem? Well, it's not just with the Protestant church, not just with the Catholic church. I got a problem with Christians. Well, what's your problem? Well, they're very insincere. What? Yeah, they don't seem to be real. At least rock and rollers are real. You always wonder why they're smashing their guitars and banging their heads, right? He's basically saying, what I mean, Eugene, is they don't seem to be honest with their feelings. And when I read the book of Psalms, I see this honesty, this raw honesty. And what he's talking about is this. You see both positive and negative in the book of Psalms. For example, you'll see these words in the book of Psalms. You'll see about wonder and awe and hope and praise and surprise by joy and celebration and victories and peace and singing and clapping and insight revealed to us and thankfulness for that and blessings and dancing and there'll be happiness and shouts of praise and faith and love and great thanksgiving. But you'll also see in the book of Psalms, if you read like two-thirds of the chapters share things of being afraid, confused, hurt, guilty, betrayed, betrayed by God, disappointed with God, disappointed with people, sadness, complaint, worry, grief, sorrow, sadness, anger, revenge, and even doubt. And all Bono was trying to say to Eugene Peterson, this great Christian leader, is, hey, how come I never hear those when I go to church? Why doesn't somebody get up and sing the blues? And I'm just thinking, he's so dead on, so true. Why don't we? So a little while ago, I'm on the phone with my brother-in-law. He's in Ohio now, planting this church. It's just growing like crazy. You see, my brother-in-law is in his 50s now. And for 25 years of his life, he lived in West Africa. And he worked with Africans, helping them helping create churches and develop, make disciples. A while back, his son went to Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, graduated, went to, into mission work for a year, and then tragically dropped dead at 21 years old. Literally, two weeks before he was going to get married. He dropped dead from some weird heart abnormality no one knew about. So my brother-in-law and his family were in deep grief. And he says, Marty, honest to God, the people in Africa were a lot better at dealing with that than the people in America. My family, my friends in America, kind of like, sorry you're sad. Okay, what's on tonight? You know, where are we going? Where, you know, like, what? My friends in Africa, they would weep with me, cry with me, be disappointed with me, be discouraged with me, be confused with me. My people in America, they weren't so good at that. He says, Marty, the people in Africa get worship better than the people in America. Not just that we can dance and clap and sing joyful songs. We sing sad songs and sing of sorrow and weep with people too. And I'm thinking at Fellowship Alliance Chapel, I don't think we get this yet. Are we doing this? Do we know how to do this? Do our worship teams know how to do this? Do we show sad slides and good slides? Are we, you see, my brother-in-law said this keyword. Don't ever forget this. He said, you know what? Isn't worship supposed to be this conversation with us and God? Shouldn't the wow factor be when people hit the back door of the church? Wow. I heard a great sermon. I hope that's not it. 
Wow, I love that special song. No, it should be, wow, I connected to God. Me and God talked. Me and God related. Me and God had this conversation. And if we're only doing a few of the Psalms and not the whole book of Psalms, if we're not doing all the emotions, just a few of the emotions, if we always major on some and ignore the others, we've really missed worship. <laughs> One time in England, there was this church not too long ago where the pastor was feeling what I'm preaching to you. And he was very discouraged. And he said, okay, that's it. I quit. We're not doing this anymore. Worship team, put the instruments away. We're not doing them anymore. Turn off the screen. Let's quit all this craziness. We got to get back to the heart of this whole thing. What's worship really all about? So they started trying to put it together. And um, they realized that they got, got a big problem here. You know, I think the problem was that a problem we all have. Maybe I can illustrate it with this story I heard a while back. Um, it was way back in World War II. There was this young man, this officer actually, who got wounded in battle. They rushed him to the hospital. As he was trying to recover, it became apparent he would be blind the rest of his life, and he couldn't see. There was one nurse that seemed to pay special attention to him and help him get better and better and better. And um, so much so that he fell in love with her. And not too long after he got out of the hospital, he proposed to her, her and she accepted, and they got married. It was just a couple years later, I forget where he was seated, but he was sitting somewhere, and he could hear these people talking about him and his wife. And maybe it happens when you lose your eyesight, you can hear better, but he could hear them. They didn't think he could hear me. He overheard these two people talking, and one person says the other person, well, boy, she's lucky he's blind. Because as homely as she is, he'd have never married her if he could see her. He heard it. So he gets up out of his chair and he walks over to where he hears the voices. And he says, you know, I just want you to know I could overhear you. And I thank God that he, he made me blind. Because it was only through my blindness that I could understand and discover this most beautiful person I've ever met in my entire life. And if I had my sight, and I would have missed this most gorgeous person that I'm now married to because of somehow her features, well then, I've been blessed more than you because God blessed me with blindness. You know what that pastor in England was disturbed about? our sight. You know what disturbs me? My sight. My sight about me and what I want and what I feel good about and the songs I think are great or, or the comfortness of, comfortableness of the service or my goals or my achievements. Or my, yeah, it's, oh God, make us blind to us 
Oh God, let us be blind to me so I can see you. Because unless I'm blind to me and my sins and my drives and my desires, I never worship and I never see God. So all that we do in church, whether it's the big screen or the sermon or the songs or the shouting or the clapping or the giving of offering, is all to blind us to this world, all to blind us to the stuff in our own sinful soul that keeps drawing us away from him instead of toward him. Oh, God, make us blind. You know what I'm going to do? In that church in England, when the pastor called it all off and they were gonna, the worship leader didn't know what to do, you know, it'd be like little Dougie here. And you're going, well, what do I do now? <laughs> he just called it all up. He said, God gave him a song. You've already sung one verse. It's called The Heart of Worship. The worship team is going to come out and lead us right now in that song. Hopefully, you can sing it differently. Let's pray. Lord, we've heard a lot. We've understood a lot, but that doesn't make us a worshiper. For a worshiper responds. I pray that this song now, getting back to the heart of worship that Matt Redmond wrote, will lead us, Lord, to worship you like never before. Help every person here be blind to themselves, blind to the room, blind to their, 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 their own wants and drives and desires, to see the Almighty for who you are, what you created, and how you've redeemed us through Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us?